0: Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Let's talk a little about the holiday according to Hasidic philosophy. Some of the things may be familiar with, familiar, some of the things may be not familiar. First, let's start with a basic understanding of the... Holiday of Sukkot, and you know, the key <coughs> that unlocks the whole theme of all these high holidays. You know, the question is Is there a connection between Elul, Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of Teshuvah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shmini, etc., Simchas It seems like different holidays, disparate holidays. What's the connection? Is there one underlying theme that connects it all? And the key that answers this question is the Mishnah and the Tractate of Tainit. Hopefully, we'll get to it in one of our Talmud classes. Tainus. Tainus. Tainit. The last Mishnah, and says that the most joyous day in the Jewish calendar was the 15th day of Av and Yom Kippur. On these two days, the Jewish girls, single women, would go and dress in white and go out to the field and they would date, they would try to find a match. And the Talmud says, what's, this, what's the source? The Mishnah says, what's the source? Because it refers to Yom Kippur as the day of God's marriage, the day that God gets married. It's His wedding. And in the day of his, the joy of His heart. And and what does this refer to? Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur was the giving of the luchot, of the tablets. Not the first set of tablets. Those were shattered, but the second set of tablets. So Yom Kippur is the day of marriage between the Jewish people and Hashem. And the analogy is like the chuppah. That is the chuppah (coughs) between the Jewish people of Hashem. Mount Sinai, the giving of the Torah is the chuppah between the Jewish people and Hashem. So now this is the key that opens the door that helps us understand all the holidays. Now we understand that the holidays is one theme running throughout the holidays. Every year, the word Shana... So this is the, so this is the honeymoon, yeah, right? No, not yet. Yep to the, yep no, to no, wait, 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 you're jumping ahead. The, uh, the year Shana, the word Shana comes from the word Shona. It repeats. Every year we relive, we re experience the exodus from Egypt all over again, the creation of the world all over again. Every year, whatever happens, we re experience. So every year we renew the marriage. We re experience the marriage of the Jewish people in Hashem. But marriage is a process. First, we start with the dating, the courting period. That's the month of Elam. The king is in the field. The king is accessible. He smiles. He shows a personal side of himself, an intimate side. Hashem reveals the 13 attributes of mercy. It's a time when the groom, God who is the groom, is courting the Jewish people. He's showing a personal side of himself and he's, he's, he's wowing us. Then comes Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, God proposes. (laughs) <laughs> will you marry me? And when the Jew blows the shofar, that's our response. The answer is yes. We coronate God as our king. King is subject, it's a relationship. It's not a job. CEO, president, leader, king, subject, is a relationship. It's 24-7 and... The Jew answers that we willingly, and the king is one that the subjects willingly accept upon themselves as a king. Not a dictator who poses upon himself, poses himself on his subjects, but he asks, the people who want to enter in this relationship, and we answer yes. We blow the The Answer is yes. Then comes the ten days of the Ten days of the are the days we're getting ready for the marriage. It's days of awe, trembling awe because We just took the plunge. We're not sure what we're getting into. It's a total commitment. It's not just a detail. It's a total commitment. You're talking marriage here. It's not just a nine to five. It's it's a total. And then comes Yom Kippur. What is Yom Kippur? What is the essence of Yom Kippur? What is the highlight of Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is not about wallowing in sin. Yom Kippur is about the holiest Jew. Representing the Jewish people. The high priest. On the holiest day of the year. Yom Kippur entering into the holiest spot on earth. Into the Holy of Holies, alone, privately, intimately. It's what we call the chuppah. The chuppah, the highlight of the chuppah is the yichud. When the husband and wife go, for the first time in their life, are alone behind locked doors together. So we fast the day of the wedding? It's right. The exactly, uh, exactly. You fast on the day of your wedding. The day of your wedding is like your personal Yom Kippur. And all your sins are forgiven, and you're starting all over again. And your are the Ila. the highlight, the climax, is when you lock the door, the husband and wife are alone together, no one else exists, because although there's a huge universe out there, there's a big world out there, you have many friends, you have many relationships, but that's all out there. In this room, no one else matters, nothing else matters. All there is, is the husband and wife are together, alone in the room together for the first time, and that's a very intimate moment. And that's the chuppah, and that's why Yom Kippur is so soul-stirring. People cry into the chuppah. It's not tears of bitterness, it's tears of joy, because your soul, it's raw. It's, it's, this is the cornerstone, the foundation of your relationship. This is the, 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 the chemistry and the connection, that, the soul connection that brings the two together, and this is, becomes the foundation for the rest of your life. So it's a very raw moment, a very intense moment, a very powerful moment and a soul-stirring moment. You can't help but be moved. The parents are crying and it's a very moving moment. That's the meaning of Yom Kippur. It's not we're crying because, you know, because of anything negative. We're crying because of the holiness of the moment, because we're so intimate with Hashem. And, and this is the foundation, the cornerstone, of the rest of our lives. What happens at the end of the chuppah when you announce Lashana, Haba, Birushalayim, when you break the glass? remember Yerushalayim then the music breaks out and the joy begins that's the holiday of sukkah the holiday of sukkah is the wedding celebration Talmud says whoever has not seen the joyous celebration in the temple during the holiday of sukkah has never seen joy in his life Simchat Beit HaShoeva when he used to draw the water and they would would be up all night dancing all night they wouldn't sleep they would just lean on each other's shoulders and catch a, a cat nap no one would sleep they would stand in the temple all from the afternoon sacrifice till the morning till dawn when they would all go to the well wellspring the gihon and collect the water they would dance all night so this is the wedding celebration and we invite the non-jews as our guests to the wedding celebration in the temple they would offer 70 bulls corresponding to the 70 nations of the world. We're representing the nations of the world. We're inviting them to join in in our wedding celebration. Because we are the chosen people. What does it mean we're the chosen people that God chose us to be his marriage partner? The non-Jew is God's best friend. And uh, we're all guilty of the same thing. We all choose, we have best friends, but we choose one person to be intimate with. The exclusion of everyone else. Now, best friends are not angry, not upset. They're actually very happy for us. That's the meaning of the chosen people. It doesn't mean we're putting anyone down on the country. We don't try to proselytize. We discourage proselytization because... But their best friends are happy for us. Because we, God chose us to be intimate, to be his intimate partner. very small friends, number of friends. Right? The number of friends are very small. Well, a lot of it comes because we are not clear about the chosen people. That's really the problem. When the, the Jew is... When the Jew is confused about what it means to be chosen, when they think chosen means because we're smart and we're clever, then that creates confusion. But when a Jew knows that being chosen is something divine and the Jew is proud of being chosen, the non-Jews only have respect for the Jew. It's really, the problem is not the problem is us. There's a lot of ignorance, a lot of ignorance out there. Um, And the good news is we can do something about ignorance. We can teach. We can communicate. LessonsInTanya.com, etc. Um, so, then, what happens at the end of Sukkot? At the end of Sukkot comes Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret is after the guests are sent away, and the bride and groom go home alone that's when the wedding celebration truly begins. That's Shmini said, Simchas Torah. God says, now it's just you and I. And how do we celebrate Simchas Torah? By physically dancing with the Torah, not by studying the Torah. You would think Simchas Torah, you should study the Torah. Torah is so deep, so profound, so delightful. You should have a deep lecture, an inspiring, interesting, stimulating. So what do we do? We take a Torah, make sure the Torah is covered and tied, inaccessible. Even if he wanted to learn, he can't even get to it. And you physically dance with the Torah. And the simplest Jew can dance as well as the rabbi, perhaps even better. He's working out in the gym all year. He has a little more strength than the rabbi, so he can dance a little better. And all Jews dance equally with the Torah. It's not just for the Torah, Rabbi, for the rabbis, for the scholars, for the simplest Jew. And we physically dance all night with the Torah. Dance with the Torah. not study the Torah. dance with the Torah. Because what are we celebrating? We're celebrating. This is our moment of intimacy, just like intimacy is physical, it's total. It affects the entire person, consciously, subconsciously, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, physically. It's a total being. A total being is totally um, connected and unified. The same is with the Jew. In Judaism, giving of the Torah for the Jewish people is a wedding celebration. It touches the totality of our being. And what happened at Mount Sinai was that Hashem empowered us, empowered the Jew to take leather hide of an animal and to transform it into a sacred object. Abraham could not do it. Isaac could not do it. Yaakov could not do it. And today, the simplest Jew the Ba mitzvah boy or the bas mitzvah girl has the ability, the simplest, the tailor, the cobbler, has the ability to take leather hide of an animal and by doing a mitzvah with it or writing a mezuzah, it becomes a sacred object, a holy object. This object itself becomes filled with holiness. You have to kiss it. You order to bring it into an inappropriate place. You stand up in front of a Torah. The physical Torah, it's not just a symbol. It, there's holiness there. When you do a mitzvah, you take a physical object, the object itself becomes holy. This is an impossibility. It's like saying 2 plus 2 is 4 is connected to this table. What does 2 plus 2 is 4 have to do with this table? 2 plus 2 is 4 is a concept that transcends time and space. How can you connect it with something physical? How much more so to take something spiritual and godly and to connect it with something physical? And yet that's the ability that God gave us. Only God has the power to create. And who did He give that power to? To his bride, to the Jewish people, if we have the power to create, to take something material, and to create it and transform it into something spiritual and godly, this is an act of creation. It's more profound and more revolutionary than God's act of creation, because God takes something spiritual and turns it into something physical. He takes energy and turns it into matter. A Jew takes matter and turns it back, turns it into energy, into spirituality, into divine, to something godly. This is this creative act is much, much more impressive much more amazing than Hashem's act of creation. And who did Hashem give this power to? Only Hashem has the power to create. Who did Hashem give His power to? To His bride. Because as a result of Hashem being intimate with the Jew, He empowered us. At Mount Sinai, He empowered the simplest Jew. Equally, Moshe couldn't have this power. Moshe, with all his greatness, doesn't have this power. No human being has this power. No angel has this power. No human being. Avram didn't have the power. Yitzhak didn't have the power. Yachin didn't have the power. Yet we... Why? Because Hashem commanded us. That's what happened at Sinai. At Revelation, Hashem revealed His essence and He empowered the simplest yid to, to be able to take a physical object. And that's what we dance with the Torah. We dance with the physical, the holy Torah that Hashem gave us this imb- ability to imbue the Torah, the leather hide with holiness. Which is, which is a, a, a symbol of, of our relationship with Hashem, our intimacy with Hashem. And that's why we physically dance with the Torah. Not just intellectual; it's our whole being is is permeated with our relationship with Hashem, our relationship with the table. We physically dance with the table. What happens as a result of this union, of this dancing with Hashem all night, dancing with the table, this physical union? We give birth. Shabbos Bereishis. We give birth to akin, Barah, Lekin, Mesa we give birth to a brand new world, a godly world. It's a new heaven, it's a new earth, it's a different world. The Jew gives birth to, to, uh, to a new world. And then what happens? That's just the beginning, that's just the foundation. The wedding is the cornerstone for the rest of your life. But then life begins then the mutual responsibilities and the mutual relationship between husband and wife because and all of it results as a result of this relationship of this love why does a do, do a mitzvah because mitzvah comes from the word mitzvah comes from the word tsevet, connection because when you do a mitzvah you strengthen your link you strengthen your connection with hashem when you do a sin you're trespassing you're transgressing What's the reward of the mitzvah? The mitzvah itself. That is the reward. The fact that I can connect with Hashem, I can get closer to Hashem, that is the most rewarding thing. I have this beautiful relationship and anything I can do. It doesn't matter if it's a great mitzvah, small mitzvah, tiny mitzvah, what difference does it make? All the mitzvah share the same common theme. Baruch Hashem, Hashem, the smallest mitzvah, the greatest mitzvah we make the same blessing. You sanctified us, you married us through the mitzvah. It's a link, it's a connection. That's why we get excited about a mitzvah because it connects us with Hashem. And that's why we we study Torah. Because as we learned in Tanya in the fifth chapter, by studying Torah you become intimate with Hashem. Your mind absorbs Hashem, and you become absorbed by Hashem in the most intimate way possible. And so therefore this is the foundation for the rest of the year, for a Jew to live the rest of the year. You're worried about the the honeymoon. I'm worried about Exodus. (laughs) You want to know when the honeymoon is? The honeymoon. Good question. Now, so this this is the underlying theme that connects all the, how this whole high holiday period from Rosh Chodesh Elo and Moshe went up the mountain for the third time and we start blowing the shofar up until Rosh and then we start unpacking the bags everything that we've all the experiences that we've accumulated and then we start Shabbat Beresh and we start the beginning of the rest of the year now sukkah the sukkah itself the um, the mitzvah is to sit in the sukkah, and the mitzvah is to shake the four species, right? The asrag, the citrus fruit, the uh, the, uh, adassim, the 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 uh, and the, the arabis, um the willow and the uh, myrtles and the palm palm branch, the luluf. Why these four species? All the species, why did Hashem command us to take these four species and and bless them? So the Medrash says that these four species represent four different types of Jews. Because the difference between these four species is that the Esrog tastes good and smells good. The uh, palm branch, which is the date, the date has a taste but has no smell, has no scent. Uh, the myrtle smells good. The Svarjan, I think every Shabbos when they make Kiddush, they, they smell this, this myrtle. And the uh, willow has no taste and no smell. So this represents four different types of juice. Smell represents good deed. When a person does a good deed, he gives off a good scent, spiritually. Those who are, who are sensitive, those who have a good sense of smell, when a person does a good deed, there's a good aroma about them, positive energy. And you can feel it. Like, like, it's like perfume. Someone walks into the room and it's, it's, it's just a good feeling. If someone has negative deeds, it creates a negative energy and a negative aroma about them. Taste. Taste represents... Torah, Because when you learn Torah, you understand it. It has a taste. You, you, you absorb it, you digest it, you, f- you uh, appreciate it. So, Esrach represents taste and smell. Um, a Jew who's filled with Torah and good deeds. The Lulav, which is actually, we actually make the blessing over the Lulav, is the Jew who is immersed in Torah. His whole life is Torah. His whole being is Torah. And that's why the Lulav stands out, because that is truly the leader. The one who's totally immersed in Torah, the one who's totally immersed in, in, in godliness, in Torah,
1: he is he is
0: truly the leader. He can guide and inspire the rest of the, the rest of the community. And that's really an ideal, even though we can't live up to it because we live in the world of action and... And this is our mission to engage in the world of action, to do good deeds. But nevertheless, we admire and respect and try to emulate as much as we can. We try to be inspired by the person of Torah, so we can learn ta- as much Torah as we can. Because we know that that's the only way to become intimate with Hashem. Even more so than through doing mitzvot, as we learn in the fifth chapter in Tanya, which is why Talmud can Kineget Kulam, the mitzvah of studying Torah is the equivalent of all the other mitzvahs combined. What you can accomplish through Torah, you cannot accomplish through all of the mitzvot. That's why we have the healthy respect for the Torah. That's why the lulav is prominent. We make the blessing over the lulav. We hold the eserik in the left hand, and we hold the lulav in the right hand. And we make the bracha al Natilis lulav. We don't tell Natilis eserik. So that's what the lulav represents. The myrtle represents a Jew who has no Torah at all, but is a man of good deeds. Good deeds, visits the sick, helps people, gives sedaka. Rolls up his sleeve, is active, participates, is a communal person, helps, the, helps people, helps the community. This is a person that gives off a tremendously good, good scent, but has no tiger. Either because they're not capable or whatever the reason is. They just don't have tiger. then you have the willow. The willow has no scent and no taste. Simple, no taste. No Mitzvah, of taking the four species, is to take all four Jews and bring them all together. And if you're missing the willow, you can't make a blessing over the lulav and the esrach because all Jews are one. And if there's one Jew missing, then, then the lulav is missing and the esrach is missing. And it's the responsibility of the lulav and the esrach to make sure to include, and include the ayurava, to include the willow. And then Hasidus explains that there's something very unique about these four species that we don't find in any other of the species, in all of God's creation, in the entire vegetable kingdom, in the organic world. That in these species, we find a sense of unity that we don't find anywhere else. Take the Esrog, for example. The Esrog grows in all four seasons. It thrives in all four seasons. It's a unique tree. Every fruit has a season that it thrives in. But the estrog is able to thrive in every season, meaning that it has the flexibility that it can get along with everyone. There's no ego. It's not rigid. It's very flexible. It thrives in winter. It thrives in fall. It thrives in spring. It thrives in summer. It gets along with everyone. Put it in any environment, and it thrives. We've chosen a tremendous quality of humility, a tremendous quality of, it's not fixed or limited or rigid. Then you have the, uh, the palm branch. The palm branch are, you know, when it opens up, you see how many pieces it has, how many leaves it has, and yet they're all bunched together. They all make room for each other, and they're all bunched together. And that's what makes that's what that's what makes up the lulu. So again, it's a display of unity. Instead of each one taking its own position, and you can't have two two people in the same taking up taking up the same place. Everyone has their own space here. It's like one on top of the other. We all get along together. And then you have the hadas, the myrtle. The myrtle has three leaves from one stem. They share the same stem. Usually every leaf has its own stem. Here you have three leaves shearing one stem. It's a show, a show of unity. There's no ego, there's no arrogance. It's unity. We can all share the same stem. And the myrtle and the willow, what's the sign of a willow? Arve nachal, they grow together, they grow bunched together, one on top of the other. So what does that mean? That means because Hasidus explains that everything in this world has a divine spark. Everything is truly godly at its core, its essence. But everything is covered up by the shell, the klipa. We don't sense it, we don't see it. It's hidden, it's concealed. There are things that are prohibited because the, sh- the, the, the uh, shell is very thick. And it totally obscures its inner, the inner light, the inner spark. But when something is kosher, for example, the vegetable kingdom, so the, it doesn't obscure the inner light, but it's still a shell, still a cover-up. But the fact that in these four species, mm-hmm. you see, a, 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 you see such unity, it means that the cover-up is very shallow. It means that the, that, that the divine spark is at the surface. The divine spark is easily accessible. And therefore, these four species, from all the four species of the organic kingdom, are the four species in which you can do a mitzvah, in which the godly spark could could be revealed. Now, there are two major holidays periods in the Jewish calendar. One is the month of Nisan, Pesach, and one is Tishrei. What's the difference between the two? Tishrei and Nisan. And the difference between the two is that Pesach led to Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, the first set of of tablets, of Luchot. While Tishrei Represents the second set of tablets, Yom Kippur, the second set of tablets. What's the difference between the two? During the first set of tablets, the Jewish people were tzaddikin, they were righteous, they were innocent, they were pure. They just left Egypt, they were pure, they were newly born. The tishrei, Yom Kippur, represents the second set of tablets, represents the child who has grown up, has turned into an adult, loses his innocence. Sins stumbles, breaks down, failure, disappointment, sorrow, anguish, pain, regret, and then reaches the level of Balchva. On Yom Kippur, you reach a much higher level. The level of the Balshruva is much greater than the level of the tadik. And the proof is, when is the only time the high priest is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies? Yeah. Only on Yom Kippur. The Baal Tshuva, the Tzaddik can't enter the Holy of Holies. It's only with the power of Teshuvah that you can enter into a place that the Tzaddik can never ever enter. The Tzaddik is never allowed into the Holy of Holies. It's only with the power of Teshuvah that, that the high priest is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. And that's why Tishrei, the letters of the word Tishrei, the man Tishrei, Go backwards, tough, shin, resh, because it shows from the bottom up. It shows that the Balshuva is coming back home, is returning home, starting from the end and working his way back. And as the Kabbalists refer to it, that the light that returns is much more powerful than the light that's straight. And the simple analogy is which places are warmer? The lower spots, the valleys, the Dead Seas, or the mountaintops, mountain peaks. Which, place, which places are warmer, which places are cooler? The lower. the lower places. Why? The mountaintop is closer to the sun. The mountaintop should be warmer. Why is the valley the warmest? It's, heat ah, in the earth. it's called the reflected light because it's the light that bounces back that gives off the real heat. When the sun's coming millions of miles away and when it hits the earth and it reflects back that's where you get that moment of impact that's where you get the intense heat. And that's why the closest you are to the ground the, uh, the more heat, the more intense the heat. And the mountain, which is further away from the ground, gets a lesser level, a lesser degree. And that's the power of Teshuvah. It's the reflective light. It's the light that goes back. It's like the difference between the window and the mirror. The window is straight. But what you see is limited. The mirror, you can see behind you. Because when the reflective light, when you look back, you can see a lot more. And that's the advantage of the Baal Tishrei represents the Baal So the difference between um, Pesach, which represents the child, and Tishrei, is as we described earlier, difference between a child and an adult. Children are pure. Children are innocent. Children have tremendous qualities. Children are curious by nature. Children are thirsty for knowledge. They absorb like a sponge. They just absorb massive amounts of information. And then we grow up. We lose our innocence, we lose our curiosity, we lose our ability to learn, we lose our 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 spontaneity. We tell our first lie. And there's no going back. Once you once you lose it, then there's no going back. So how so what's the What's the ultimate, what's the challenge? What's how does a person regain his innocence, <laughs> childlike innocence? And that's what we call we call marriage. <laughs> In marriage, a person goes back to his childhood and recaptures his childlike innocence goes back to the Garden of Eden. Literally. Physically. Not just in the physical sense, but in all, all levels. That he creates a place where there's trust, where he feels he can be vulnerable and no one's going to hurt him. With his unconditional love. That's the meaning of a home. A place you feel at home. Not only externally, an external mansion, but internally. You feel at home, because of the love and the relationship and the unconditional love and the... and it's going back to the Garden of Eden, it's not just going back physically to the Garden of Eden before the sin, the husband and wife go back like Adam and Chava but also emotionally and spiritually that they can be naked in the emotional sense and spiritual sense and trust each other and they're not going to hurt each other and, they're, and um, but the difference is that they're doing it as adults not like children because although children are innocent and pure but children don't get married children could only receive they can't give any you love children you can't help but love children but children can't give back that love children can't love someone else they they're they dependent they're needy they're dependent they are to, it's a, it's a, they're totally in the receiving end then that they don't have the they're not adults they don't have the maturity be able to give back and to reciprocate and to take care of another person so it's only when a person is independent a person is mature that a person could take the initiative and the person has the strength to take care once they are on their own two feet they're standing on their own two feet then they could in turn take care of another person and give them that unconditional love and create that space for them and create that home for them And then you recreate the Garden of Eden. But you recreate it as adults, not as children. And that lasts forever. Because childhood doesn't last forever. Adam was in the Garden of Eden for how long? A few hours. and It was all over. We lose our childhood innocence, but in the wink of an eye, it's all over. We lost it. We lost our Garden of Eden not that it was a waste no no not by, not by, not by any by no means it's not a waste that's that's a reality that's a truth because our foundation is the garden of eden our foundation is that purity that innocence of a child that child remains with us the rest of our lives that place remains with us the rest of our lives there is that that place of purity and innocence and trusting and 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 love and and, and that place is there it could be buried and covered up and but it's there. We can be alienated from it. We can be exiled from it. But that, that core, that's there. And the challenge is to go back, but not to go back to the Garden of Eden. There's no going back. You can't go back. Once you grow up, you're an adult, you can't pretend to be a child again. You're not a child. You have a mind. You're self-aware. You're conscious. You're ego. You're, you have a healthy sense of self. There's no pretending to go back as if, if you don't exist, if there's no ego. You can't put the baby back in the womb the baby is out. But you could do, as an adult, you can deliberately and consciously choose to recreate that space and do it as an adult. And once you've mastered the ability to deliberately and consciously go back home and recreate a Garden of Eden in your own house, house, which is why the woman goes to the Mikla, because it's bringing in the waters of the Garden of Eden, recreating that paradise into the home, bringing it into the home, into the family bringing that, that purity, then that's forever. Because what's the source of all human misery? Ego. If people had no egos, this world would be a garden of Eden. This world would be heaven. No jealousy, no envy, no hatred, no lies. If all there was was trust, and love and goodness and kindness and gentleness, this place would be a Garden of Eden. But instead, workplaces, people people stab each other in the back, People, everyone is jealous of this one, this one is jealous of that one, this one is undermining this one, pretending to be a friend. I mean, the whole workplace is so seething with, with plots and with, with negative energy and nothing gets done, and this one is undermining this one, this one doesn't trust this one. I mean, you can't function. ego destroys it destroys businesses it destroys families it destroys friendships it destroys anything that's good in this world wars, conflict if people would not have egos 99% of human misery would be solved psychologists would be out of business and people would be healthy and people would be happy And that reminds me of the story, the, there was a king who suffered from depression and he had the best doctors. They couldn't cure him. And finally the doctor tells him the only cure is you have to wear a shirt of someone who's genuinely happy. And if you wear the shirt you will be cured of your melancholy. So he sends out his servants to search all four corners of his kingdom to find that one person who's genuinely happy and they look and they search and they can't find Finally, at the edge of the kingdom, they bump into a person. He's the happiest person they ever met. He's good, good in a good mood. He's cheerful. He's happy. He's just wonderful. Exactly what the doctor ordered. No, they turned to him and they said, please, we have to ask you one favor. Get <laughs> The king needs your shirt? He says, I don't have a shirt. Uh, he was the happiest person. Because nothing external can make us happy nothing that's ego ego thinks if I have money I'll be happy if I have fame I'll be happy if I have externals, I'll be happy and you get all the externals and you get all these trappings and of course it doesn't make you happy which is what the sukkah reminds you You, the sukkah says leave your home because the home is not not what's going to make you happy you think you're, you're settled, you're home the Torah says leave your house live in the sukkah and you're the happiest person in the world you have nothing You and the guest are the same. You feel like a guest in your own sukkah. And therefore, you make everyone else feel at home because you are a guest. Because you realize that we are a guest in God's world. And it's not about external. It's not about I've accumulated, I've acquired, I have this, and I have this, and I possess this, and I own this, and I have this money in the bank, and I have this, and I... That's not what gives you security. Your home gives you security. The money in the bank gives you security. That's nothing. The only one that gives you security is Hashem. We're sitting in Hashem's sky. We're sitting under the stars. We're sitting under the shach. We're sitting under the mitzvah, surrounded by Hashem. That's what gives us security. That's what gives us confidence. That's what gives us joy. That's, That's our identity. A person who's able to leave his ego behind, a home that represents his ego, his accumulated wealth, during the four when a Jew worked so hard to planted his fields and finally Chag Asif he brings all his wealth into the house and Hashem kicks him out of the house. Now go live in the sukker. That's nothing. That's not your wealth. You think you accumulated, you acquired, that's external. Your wealth is from within. Your wealth is because you're sitting in Hashem's little hut. That's what that's your wealth. That's what gives you the confidence. That's what gives you strength. That's the foundation of your being. So for a person, if there was no ego, for seven days we leave our ego at home and we live in Hashem's death and we're the happiest people in the world. And we feel the safest and the secure. Safe and secure and joyful and While in the home we don't feel comfort. Because ego is shaky. External, External circumstances are shaky. Today they're here, tomorrow's gone. Hashem, this is reality. So, if people had no egos, this world would be a paradise. But, in the, you oh, but on the other hand, ego is not all negative either. Ego is a neutral force, ego is a powerful energy. There's more energy on Wall Street than any, any synagogue I've ever been to, except 7 7. <laughs> This is powerful energy. And once we have egos, once Adam and Chav, after they ate from the tree, they acquired an ego. They became aware, self-aware, self-conscious. They grew up. They became adults. They stopped being children and suddenly they realized they were naked. They felt themselves. They became self-aware. Not like children who are innocent or the pure. They don't even feel themselves. They're not aware of themselves. They became aware of themselves and suddenly they felt ashamed and naked. There's no going back. You can't go back to the Garden of Eden but we could do one better. And that is harnessing the ego. Taking that very source, the source of all evil, the source of all friction, the source of everything that's negative in this world, and transforming it into a totally positive. By by using your ego, your sense of self, your sense of initiative, Use that sense of self and take the initiative and deliberately and consciously, independently give another person that unconditional love. Create that marriage, create that home, create that space. Create that Garden of Eden. Now you have transformed the negative into a pasha. That's forever. The Garden of Eden lasted a few hours. That tzaddik is untested, is unproven. We don't know if he's tested how things will turn out. But the baltruva, who sinned, who stumbled, who suffered. When he transforms himself, he has transformed the negative into positive. Then you guarantee this is forever. Because he tasted the other side. And yet he's turned it around and has turned the negative into positive. Bitterness into sweetness. Darkness into light. the Sin into admittance. That's forever. And that's why marriage, marriage is forever. You're building something that's going to outlive you, it's going to last you forever. And, ever. and that's what Tishrei represents. Tishrei represents Nissan. We're innocent. We're children. We get rid of every drop of chametz, every crumb of negativity. We're pure. We're starting all over again. We ask the four questions. We're like pure and innocent. We receive the Torah. We're we're tzaddikim. Tishrei represents, but but you can't marry a child. It's wonderful you can't marry a child. You can love them to death, but you can't marry them. Tishrei represents the adult. This is the marriage of the Jewish people. This is, now we're adults. And we're transforming the negative. We take money, the ultimate ego symbol, and we give tzedakah with it. Instead of money being a source of friction and negativity and fragmentation and tearing people apart and tearing families apart, tearing friendships apart, this actually becomes a powerful bridge that connects people and connects communities. So this is the power of Tishrei. The power of Tishrei is the power of, of the Bal You're saying is it, it was divine providence that they built the calf, because otherwise there would, no, there would not be a Bal It's It was divine providence that Adam sinned. <laughs> As the Medra says, Adam turned to God, and he says, you know, you're just looking for excuses. So you blamed it on me. This is part of the divine plan. He blamed it on me, that I chose wrongly and I couldn't resist temptation. But ultimately, this is part of your plan. Because if Adam would not have sinned, he would never have reached the level of the baltruva. So it's like a covert operation. (laughs) The government will deny any knowledge. We have nothing to do with it. No strings. we never heard of you. We don't know you. No connection. But the truth is, covertly, of course, everything happens in this world. Everything is divine providence. And ultimately, Hashem wants us to reach the level of Baal which is why He enables, He allows us to sin. He allows us to stumble. And even worse sins, because mm-hmm. He wants us ultimately to transform that negative energy, as we studied in the seventh chapter in Tanya, to transform the negative energy into positive energy which is how Rabbi Levi Badicha, the great Hasidic master, explains and Rosh Hashanah it says we blow shofar. After we blow the obligatory sounds, which is 30 sounds of shofar, before davening we blow another 30. Why? To confuse Satan. What do you mean to confuse Satan? How, how do you confuse Satan by blowing shofar? So actually explains because by showing that we love the mitzvah so much that we're doing beyond our obligation, we're doing another 30, this confuses Satan. So he explains, what do you mean it's this confuses Satan? This will cause Satan to stop prosecuting the Jewish people. So the question is, why would this, on the contrary, now he first has to begin prosecuting. He sees that the Jews are so favorably before God, he has to remind God that, listen, how about the sin they did yesterday and the day before? Why would this silence Satan? And the B'lodizah B'adishev explains, because, sins, the bal tshuva, the highest level of tshuva as we studied in the 7th chapter of Tanya reaches a level where the sins itself become mitzvah the satan is terrified he, he, he closes his mouth he doesn't want to say a word every sin that he's going to mention is going to be turned into a mitzvah he says I better keep quiet I don't want to bring up all the sins when the Jews show that they love the mitzvah so much they have such a love relationship with God that they love him so much. Hashem is going to look for all those sins. Give me all those sins. I want to transform into mitzvahs. He's silent. He's, I, I don't want to mention anything. So this is what Tishri represents. Tishri represents the adult, the Baltruva who approaches Hashem as an adult, who's not, who lost his innocence and tries to recapture his childlike, not his childishness, but his childlike innocence and purity. And this is, this, is, this is what Mashiach represents. Mashiach represents that we'll go back to the Garden of Eden but on the higher level. Because Mashiach will be eternal. Once the redemption comes, it'll be forever. Why is Mashiach forever? Adam wasn't in Gan Eden forever. He lasted a few hours. So maybe Mashiach will come for a few days and then we'll, God forbid, revert back. Why will, why will Mashiach be forever? Because Mashiach represents the marriage of the Jewish people and God. Mashiach will come as a result from the bottom up, from us realizing and recognizing and as, as adults taking the initiative and choosing and deliberately and consciously choosing to enter into a relationship with Hashem. Using our egos, our sense of initiative. Harnessing that powerful energy for the right direction. By not being a passive Jew. That tzaddik is passive. He receives, God like a child, God gives and he receives passive. He sits in his community, observes, obeys, is pure, is innocent, doesn't leave the walls of his community, doesn't go beyond the confines of his community, listens, is a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl, does exactly what Hashem wants him to do. That's beautiful. But the balt doesn't sit passively. The balt is an activist. He doesn't wait for instructions. He takes initiative. Maybe I could reach another Jew. Maybe let me go out. Let me use my initiative. Let me let me create something. Let me do something. Let me attract something. Let me try to. To to you don't wait for instructions. Or for, you go ahead and you use your initiative. You use your sense of ego. You use your sense of of adulthood to go and to take charge and to make it your own. Because the Shuvah is his own. He owns it. Paid the ultimate price, and he owns it. And if something is your own, you don't wait for an initiative. If you're a worker, you wait. You do exactly as you're instructed. Nothing more, nothing less. You can even work 18 hours a day. You can be so such a dedicated worker, you work 18 hours a day. But you follow instructions. After 18 hours, you close the book, you go home. The owner, he's not working 18 hours, he's 24-7. He doesn't wait for instructions. He doesn't wait for what's conventional, not conventional. He's constantly thinking and scheming, and he takes the initiative. And how do I expand and grow? I'm not going to wait till a customer comes to me. I'm going to make sure to get the word out. That's the difference. If Yiddishkeit is your own, if you're married to it, or it's, it's holy, Hashem commands me. I have to do the right thing, and that's uh, that's it. That's very limited. That's the child. That's the tzaddik. The baltruv is the adult who's married to God, who has a personal, intimate relationship with God, who takes it personally, who owns it, who takes the initiative, who uses his ego to deliberately and consciously recreate and give to God, not just wait passively for Hashem to command him and to instruct him, but takes the initiative and gives something back and does something, takes an active position and even pushes the envelope trying to Increase the awareness of Hashem and try to make people aware of Hashem. That's the adult. That was the Rebbe's approach, the activist approach. That's the Hasidic approach. Not to wait passively for Mashiach to come, but to take the activist approach. We're partners, it's a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. It's to do, it's yours. What am I doing about it? Of course Mashiach is in Hashem's hands and we're not letting Hashem off the hook. (laughs) Hashem has to do what He has to do and He hasn't done it yet. The proof is we're still sitting in exile. The the temple has not been rebuilt. But but we're going to do what we have to do. We're not going to wait. We're going to do whatever we can, whatever... But that's the sign of an adult, that's the sign that it's a marriage, that's the sign that it's personal, it's a partnership, it's my own, not past. That's the difference between in the innocence of the child of Nisan and the giving of the first set of the commandments, Shavuos, which is a continuation of Nisan the Pesach, and Rosh Hashan Elul, Rosh Hashan, which is the Baal after we sinned with the golden calf and after we were shattered, the tablets were shattered and our relationship was shattered and there was a severance, and there was a crisis, and there was a pain and a poignancy, and then out of that comes Yom Kippur. It's like when there's a crisis in the relationship, and then you discover a deeper level in the relationship, and you reconcile, and you come back, a reunion even stronger than before, because you discover a new depth. That's Yom Kippur, that's Rosh Hashanah, that's Sukkot, that's the marriage, and that's the joy, that's the tremendous joy. Because the joy is the novelty. Marriage is a novelty. That's the joy. That we're able to give something back to God. That we're able to... God empowered us to create. To use our egos. To use our physical bodies. To take physical leather hide of an animal. And to be able to sanctify it. And to fill it with, with sanctity, with holiness. This is a novelty. It's an act of creation. It's a total novelty. So it's, it's a joyous occasion. And that's why we express the marriage of the Jewish people in Hashem, on Sukkahs, in the most joyous way, Simchas and the ultimate joy, which is Simchas Tev, which gives us joy for the rest of the year. And the Sukkah represents Hashem's hug. What's the difference between a hug? When you kiss someone in the face, you love their, their face, you love their mind, you love their brain, you love their looks, you love their the overt qualities. But when you love someone totally, you hug them. What's a hug? A hug is you embrace the back. But you love, when you love a person totally, you love them completely. You love every part of them. Not just. You love every part of them. And that's represented in the sukkah. Because the sukkah is the only mitzvah in the Torah that permeates the entire person. In a sense, even more than mikvah. Mikvah also, you have to immerse yourself totally under water; Not even one hair could be sticking out. But mikvah is just you. A sukkah, you bring in you and your clothes and your boots and even the mud under your feet. And what's a mitzvah in the sukkah? The mitzvah in the sukkah is not just a study Torah. You're reading a newspaper, reading in the sukkah. You're taking a walk in the sukkah. You're relaxing in the sukkah. You're having a cup of tea, You're having conversation in the sukkah. Everything you do should be in the sukkah. Everything you do suddenly becomes amidst the most mundane things. I'm not doing anything Jewish. I'm not doing anything godly. I'm not doing, I'm reading a paper. But everything is embraced in our relationship with Hashem. It means it's an expression, of the fact that relationship is so total that it affects our whole being. Everything we do becomes part of Godliness. It's not compartmentalized. not just when we're engaged in holy activities. Every aspect of our life, even the mud in our feet, everything that we're doing is all permeated because it's all part of a relationship. A relationship, a marriage is a total commitment. It's not just nine to five. It's 24-7. Every aspect of our being, every fiber of our body, every bone in our body, every fiber of our being, everything is permeated and connected with Hashem. That's the ultimate expression of Hashem's love for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people's love for Hashem. This is one of the most profound holidays, most joyful holidays. The nature of joy, it breaks through all boundaries. And it's a joy here below and it's a joy above. It's called Zman Simcha Sena, the time of our joy. It's a mutual joy. We rejoice with God and God rejoices with us. We see God and God sees us. Because it's a mutual relationship. It is the sixth month? Seventh. how how does it I mean I I get some with it has to do with the maturity it's already been matured well the simple explanation is that the the Jewish people switched from a solar calendar when God created the world the world was a solar calendar so the Jewish people switched from a solar calendar to a lunar calendar and that began the month of Nisan the month they left Egypt that was the first month. While Tishrei is a solar calendar, the sun. And the difference between the sun and the moon is the sun is constant. The sun represents nature. Nature is constant. The laws of nature are like fixed, set, doesn't change, rigid. The moon represents miracles, waxing and waning, new, constantly changing, ups and downs. And that's the story of the Jewish people till the entry of the Jewish people into the world, the world was basically rigid, fixed, nature. Avram performed miracles, Yitzhak performed miracles, but it was on a small scale. With the entry of the Jewish people into history, Moshe introduced to the world miracles on a grand global scale. Ten plagues, the world's superpower, Hashem brought, brought down the world's superpower, miraculously, the splitting of the sea under the whole world. 40 years in the desert of manna of the whole it was miracles consistent miracles on a global scale for so long because the Jewish people introduced to the world a miraculous it's a miraculous people it doesn't fit into the world of nature the very first born Jew was born to a 90 year old mother and a 100 year old father the very survival of the Jewish people is miraculous nothing about the Jew is natural everything about the Jew is miraculous and the Jewish way of life is miraculous it's above nature transcends nature. So the Jew introduced into the world the conduct kind of nature. That's what Nisan represents, the birth of the Jew, the giving of the Torah. Tishrei represents the world of nature. God creates the world of nature. That's why it's the beginning of the year. when The year, because don't forget the difference between the year and uh, uh, the, in the year depends on the solar. There's an annual cycle. The, the sun, 365 days. There are no months. The months are artificial. 28 days, 31 days. It's artificial. You just take 365 and divide it. In the solar, there is no thing as a year. When you follow the moon, there is no thing as a year. It's 29 and a half days and that's it. And that's why it's 354 days, it's 11 day difference. The, the moon years, if you just follow the moon, it's 11 days shorter of the sun year. But the Jews, we follow both the sun and the moon. We're primarily a, solar, a lunar calendar, but the Torah tells us we have to look out for the seasons. Because Sukkot has to be in the fall and Pesach has to be in the spring. So the springs and the fall, the seasons, follow the sun. So you have to follow both. That's why we have a leap year. Every two, three years, we, have, we add another month to make up for the 33 days that we lost, you know, to reconcile the two. So um, that's why this is the beginning of the year of the sun. That starts with Tishri. The beginning of the moon of this lunar calendar that starts with Nisan and, and that's why Tishrei is the seventh month and we know that all sevens are beloved the seventh day is Shabbos the holiest Moshe was the seventh from Avram; he was the most beloved he brought the Shekhinah into this world he brought heaven down to earth uh, the Shemitah the sabbatical you have the Jubilee everything is the seventh the seventh heaven seven is a very holy number a very special number and that's why you find the seventh month is the holiest month. It has so many holidays, so many mitzvot. shvi in Hebrew, which means seventh, also comes from the word muzbah. It's satiated, it's full. When the person is full. Sava, sava, v'savata, saveya. You're full, it's filled, it's satiated with holidays and mitzvot and, and, and uh, experiences. So rich, more than any other month of the year. packed. It's dense with holidays and experiences of Shoshana, and 10 days of Tshuva, and Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and Shemiyat and what's that. From today, we, from, uh, today we, do, we don't say Tachlan until the end of the month. So this is a very special month, the seventh month, the beloved month. And this is a month that we receive the Torah. The question is, if, why do we make some Torah? Now, we should make some Torah on Shavuos since the Torah was given on Shavuot we should make some Torah on we should start reading the Torah on Shavuot and finish reading the Torah and why do we start reading the Torah uh, and the Shabbos and we finish reading the Torah on Simchas Torah during this time period of Tishrei and again this is the answer because the Shavuot is the giving of the first Luchot the level of the Tzadik But the Yom Kippur is the real giving of the Torah. It's the second luchas that lasted, that did not break. It's the baltruva that doesn't break. The tzaddik is is innocent and pure, but he he can lose his innocence. The moment he's tested, he loses his innocence. The baltruva who went through, who, who, who was broken and shattered, his heart was broken, and there's nothing more whole than a broken heart as the original Rebbe said, and then he reaches a level of Baal Shuvah. he reaches a wholeness and a completion that the Tzaddik can only dream of. And therefore that lasts forever. And that's why the real joy of Torah, the real Simchas Torah, the real marriage of the Jewish people and Hashem, is not as children, as innocent, pure children, child, childish innocence of the Tzaddik, but it's only the level of purity of the Baal Shuvah of Yom Kippur, the forgiveness and the cleansing and the reconciliation and the coming back together deeper and more intense and more powerful. Uh, the light that comes out of the darkness. And this is the this last, this endures, and this is a tremendous joy. This is the tremendous, that evokes a tremendous joy. The marriage of two adults because it's a novelty. The novelty is that we've taken the negativity, not only neutralized the negativity. On Pesach, we neutralize the negativity. God, it was such a great illumination of God that the chametz did not rise. So God neutralized the chametz, the negativity. On Tishrei, we do one better. Not only do we neutralize negativity, we transform the negativity. Negativity itself becomes positive. We've taken ego, and, and you can't pretend it's not there, or suppress it, or deny it, or neutralize it. You transform it. The ego itself becomes a force for the good. You harness it. You use your adulthood, your sense of initiative, your sense of ownership, your sense of being proud of something that you've accomplished on your own, and use it, and you connect it with Hashem. And that's the marriage of the Jewish people in Hashem. And that's the totality of the relationship. That's the tremendous, tremendous joy, which is why this world is like a, a, a wedding. The Zohar says this world is like a wedding. Because this world is all about the marriage between heaven and earth, between body and soul. And that's a novelty. And that you can only accomplish in this world. So where do we become intimate with Hashem? The neshama before the neshama came down to this world is like a tzaddik. The neshama in heaven was pure and innocent and the highest level. But when the neshama comes down into this world, and that's a very traumatic descent, and then it gets worse because then we, there's even a greater descent when we fail and we stumble and we disappoint and we, we get ourselves a little schmutzig. But then the Neshama reaches the level of the baltrona. And the Neshama reaches the level of marriage. And that you can only accomplish in the physical world. That you can only accomplish in this world. That's what tishri does. We physically dance with the tayyum. We sit in Hashem's embrace and the sukkah. Hashem's loving embrace. We bring every part of us into the sukkah. The boots and the mud on the boots every part the good, the bad, the ugly every part of us comes inside the sun. and then we the climax and the culmination of the whole tishrei is simchas and this is a taste of the ultimate marriage, it's only a taste tiny taste, the smallest taste of the joy the ultimate joy, the joy of Mashiach will come, the joy when Hashem will rebuild the base of bigness when Hashem will consummate His marriage with the Jewish people. And 14 million Yidin will be dancing in the streets of Yerushalayim that one day we'll hear in the cities, of in, the, in the hills of Yerushalayim we'll hear the voice the voice of the Chasim, the ultimate chasen, Hashem and the ultimate kala which is His Jewish people when Hashem will demonstrate His love for the Jewish people not behind closed doors as he is now, but so will demonstrate his love for the Jewish people in the most open, in the most obvious, in the most manifest way, and he rebuilds the of Mi'gosh, and then we'll invite all the 70 nations in the world to be our guests, our best man at our wedding, and all the angels will rejoice, and the whole universe and all the heavens and all the earth will be happy and rejoice for the Jew and for Hashem, and they'll be happy for us, and they'll feel good, and they'll feel safe, Because until Hashem marries the Jewish people consummates his marriage with the Jewish people the whole world is the world is not safe The world is not whole the world is incomplete the world is up it's not the world is upside down it's unnatural for a Jew not to be with Hashem it's unnatural it's unnatural when the Jew is unnatural the whole world is upside down it's unnatural and the world senses which is why they direct their angry anger at us Jew get your act together we're suffering because you don't have your act together. The whole world is imbalanced. The whole world is, is insecure. And we're making them insecure. So it's a way they're pleading with us please get your act together. Did they know that. Okay. Subconsciously, whether they know it overtly or covertly, they know. Why are they obsessed with the Jew? Because they know that until the Jew gets their act together, the whole world will suffer. The whole universe is suffering. We're suffering. God is suffering. The whole world is upside down. It's crooked. It's distorted. We, the world cannot... It's not centered. The world cannot come together until the Jew gets to act together. And once we... Then Hashem will consummate His marriage with us. Then the world will reach its homes. Then we'll go back to the Garden of Eden. But not as children, but as adults. That's why it will be forever. What does that mean, getting our acts together? You mean everybody would be righteous? It means very simple. Every single Jew in the world, from the greatest to the smallest, doing one more mitzvah. Taking one baby step forward. Whatever level you're at, taking one baby step forward. Pushing yourself a drop. Tapping into your Jewishness. Connecting with your Jewishness and growing. Moving forward. And today, the, second, the day after Yom Kippur, we'll conclude with this. They once asked the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, asked his father, the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, so what do we do now? We just finished the month of Elul, doing tshuva, saying slichot, and Rosh Hashanah, blowing the shofar, and the 10 days of tshuva, and Yom Kippur. And we reached the highest level, the 5th level of the soul, on the Elah. What do we do now? He says, oh, now we first have to begin doing tshuva. What do you mean? First, have to begin doing travel? We just we just spent forty days going from level to level to level. What do you mean? Now we have to start it all over again? What's? The... There's a beautiful story told of Rabbi Sadigun, one of the greatest goyim of a thousand years ago in Iraq, and he he was once stayed at an inn. And in those days, people had no pictures. People didn't know. He didn't know Rabbi Sadio Goyan was famous. He was the greatest Jew in his day and age. He was like the Moses of his generation. But he never saw him. And he didn't introduce himself. He stayed at the inn. He checked in. And he was a nice person. He treated all his guests very nicely. And he treated them also very nicely. Gave them a room, treated them fairly, and that's it. But then he saw hundreds of people came to the hotel. They heard that the Rabbi Sadio Goyan is in town. And they're looking. Where's the rabbi? Where's the rabbi? You know who's staying in your hotel? he realized he's the, the most illustrious Jew is staying in his hotel and he, he, didn't, he didn't he didn't treat him with proper respect he treated him very respectfully but he didn't. so he comes in to him he says Rabbi he starts crying please forgive me he looks at him forgive you for what? he says because well, I didn't treat you with respect he says well, no it's not true you treated me very respectfully well, what do you mean you, you didn't treat me with disrespect he says no Rabbi treated you like an ordinary person I could treat everyone else I didn't know who you are I didn't know that you're the great I wouldn't know and I had to treat you with extraordinary respect, give you the red carpet treatment, I just treat you like everyone else that's disrespect I said, and told the students, this taught me a tremendous lesson because the same is true with Hashem because every day we grow in wisdom so every day I have a deeper understanding of who Hashem is. So I realize that the way I treated Hashem yesterday is almost insulting. Of course I treated Hashem yesterday with respect. But, but I didn't realize who Hashem is. So I treated Him with respect based on my limited understanding yesterday. But now they have a much deeper understanding and a much deeper appreciation of who Hashem is. That's, that's the way I treated Him. That's disrespectful. So every day you have to be Not that I sinned. But every day as you grow so that's what the Rebbe Rashab says. After, you rush, after Elul, and after Rosh Hashanah, and after 10 days of Shuvah, and after Yom Kippur, you've reached such a high level of understanding of godliness. And this is the way you treated Hashem. Oh, now you first have to do Shuvah. <laughs> now you first have to ask forgiveness. Lessons in Tanya taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.